those three issues are indivisible. Development in, in dealing with inequality, climate and biodiversity, broadly speaking. They are closely interconnected and in part because they're part of the same issue, right? They uh, tell the story of development trajectories and the choices of development that we have been making, particularly after the Second World War. So, you know, we, we have a process after the Second War that, that we call the Great Acceleration, you know, which is the, the, the speed up of a development framework that is based on, you know, appropriation and expansion of the appropriation of nature and, and, and you know, without accounting for, of course, the costs of that development. Welcome to Animalia, a podcast all about making it easy and inclusive to learn about this big, beautiful planet, the life we share it with, and how to protect it. Across all of our branding about Animalia, we often mention that we focus our content around addressing both the climate and biodiversity crises. In some ways, I'm a bit conflicted by this framework because they really are one and the same. However, increasingly among activists, there's been a bit of a divide forming between climate activists focusing priority on lowering emissions, above all else, and environmentalists focusing priority on protecting ecosystems, above all else. It's a really dangerous divide because of how much both issues really affect our day-to-day lives and our prospects for the future. And above all else, they're both so intertwined with social justice as well. When we talk about the biodiversity crisis, what exactly are we referring to? Well, it goes far beyond the collapse of the nearly 1 million animal and plant species on the brink of extinction at the moment. It's a much broader and more complicated issue of ecosystem health overall. And as members of these ecosystems as well, humans suffer a great deal if and when they collapse, with the most marginalized of humans bearing the brunt of it. A good example of how these issues all come together is what's happening on the U.S. southern border. Now, there's a rush of migrants over the last year that everyone blames on policy. Now, while policy plays a role, there isn't enough talk about the role of climate and biodiversity. Many of these migrants have been forced to vacate their homes because their means of life have been compromised, primarily due to ecosystem decline and global warming. In Honduras, for example, they're in a record 10-year drought, destroying the livelihoods of a very agriculturally dependent nation a drought that's heavily influenced by global warming, but more potent due to declining ecosystem health that lowers crop resilience. If you truly can no longer grow food because of these changes, and your options are to migrate or die, I think every single one of us would choose to migrate. Now, I'm oversimplifying that particular issue for illustration's sake to show how interrelated the issues of social justice, climate change, and biodiversity health are. Joining us today is environmental anthropologist Eduardo Brondizio from Indiana University. He's also a member of the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, known as IPBES, which is dedicated to furthering the conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity for long-term human well-being and ecosystem health. His background as an anthropologist offers a really interesting and unique perspective on the human behaviors at play here versus what we typically hear from, say, a biologist. I think you'll be equally fascinated by our chat as I was. And you're going to meet Eduardo right after this short break. Please rate our podcast and give us a review. Seriously, this helps our discovery so much. 
The team here at Animalia produces this show not because we're paid to do so, but because we care so much about these issues and are contributing what we can to advancing solutions through everyone we reach with this podcast. In order for us to reach more folks, we need all of you sharing it. And if you can't share it directly, leave us a rating or review. It means the world to us. If you get a chance, we really appreciate it. All right, so to kick things off, I asked Eduardo to define biodiversity in his own words. Well, thank you for the question. This is a great entry question. Um, today, I mean, biodiversity has itself a definition as related to the diversity of the species, genes, and um, you know, uh, communities of species on Earth. But I think the way the, the term is used today reflects much more broadly our understanding of nature. You know, so when you talk about biodiversity, when you talk about biodiversity crisis, we're not only talking about uh, species extinction, right, or problem with the species. We're, we're talking about a much broader, um, a much broader set of crises, interconnected crises, uh, that has to do with the decline in nature and what we can benefit from nature. Um, they also the unequal distribution of the burdens of those declines across people, uh, the underlying foundations that sustain our production systems, our economy, you know, and, and our good lives, in fact. So biodiversity, what is important about biodiversity is that it cut across all the challenges that we have today, you know, food production, uh, environmental quality and ecosystem services, water provisioning, uh, economy, you know, uh, all rests on uh, nature and biodiversity. And so, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people, when they think biodiversity, their first thought, as you mentioned, goes to species extinction, and even specifically, sometimes only animal species, not plant species extinctions. Uh, I think there's something like 1 million endangered animal and plant species today, yes. right? Critically endangered as, as, a, as is that, is that number fairly accurate? This is the number that the Global Assessment Report, which I co-chair, um, and is the product of hundreds of, of um, scientists and experts, that our estimates based uh, on different kinds of evidence show that uh, currently uh, we have between 500,000 and a million species uh, in different groups you know, that are threatened with uh, extinction during the century. You know, so the current conditions put so much pressure in the, the trajectories that we see today in terms of transformation of habitats, the contribution of climate change, land use change, uh, have created a condition in which these many species between 500,000 and a million are, in a, are threatened. As we lose more and more plant and animal species, with as many as 1 million of them under threat of extinction, as Eduardo pointed out, the ecosystems they live in suffer as well. To illustrate this, uh, think of a tennis racket. Now, a strong tennis racket has hundreds of smaller links that make up the graphite mesh at its center. Over time, as a racket ages, well, some of those links come undone. The racket becomes less powerful, more erratic, and eventually unusable. It can sustain a few damaged links, but once those few are there, it leads to more and more damage over time because the overall strength and resiliency of that tennis racket has been compromised. Well, ecosystem health works in a similar way. 
with all the variety of life serving as those links. As an ecosystem weakens, its ability to serve important roles like producing food and sequestering carbon weaken as well. So too does its own immune system in a way, making it more susceptible to the changes in weather brought on by global warming. An example I, I try to cite sometimes when we talk about the ecosystem collapses, right? Because that's a big part of this yeah. is just as an anecdote of what's happening to our coral reefs. Right? Our coral reefs are getting bleached and collapsing at historic rates. Uh, it seems like ocean acidification and rising temperatures are kind of the drivers of that. And I think people don't quite appreciate how much our coral reefs do for us. It's, it's, it's more than, uh, it's way more than a tourist attraction. It's, you know, actually housing. I mean, I think some, there's something like 20% of marine life is unique to corals, coral reef ecosystems, but it's also the, you know, they help sequester carbon. They help produce oxygen. They help prevent coastal erosion, right. Um, and, and thus supporting those coastal communities, many coastal communities depend on the fish that coral reefs, uh, uh, sort of give life to, especially when we think of in developing nations and, you know, indigenous people and things like that. So, you know, I, it's, Coral reef and the collapse of reefs, like a good example of, you know, sort of the, um, the type of ecosystem collapse we're really worried about? That's a great question because it, it gives the entry point to different things, you know. So you describe it really well, you know, how the, the foundations of many things that we do and the quality of life that we have, the, the economy of local communities and so forth depend on ecosystems and depend on the food chains that are connected, right? from the smallest level to the largest level in which coral reefs play a huge role, right? So it's a, a great example of how much, you know, biodiversity you can think about is like the foundations of a house, right? You have all those different kinds of bricks and rocks that create that foundation. And what's happening is that we're taking a rock at the time. And while the, you know, the house is still there, we're making much weaker, right? And the, the foundations of this house is much weaker. But I want to take this opportunity actually to make a, a broader point, which is the fact that biodiversity and climate are indivisible. And I, I think it was, it's going to still take some time for us to understand that, you know, we're treating these problems, of course, on their own merits and because they involve very complex political, economic, human and governance issues. But they are completely interdependent. You cannot deal with biodiversity issues without now dealing with the climate and of course many more human forces as we can talk about you know the, the main drivers of biodiversity today as we rank at them you know it's land use and sea use change direct extraction of resources uh, then the third major driver is climate change and then pollution and invasive species right so you have climate is a, a huge driver today and but also other drivers so it's indivisible the, the the coral bleach is a good example because it shows the cascading effect of these problems right so you have uh, ocean acidification which is related you know largely with concentration of carbon and, and of course with climate uh, and with emissions um, then you have, of course, ocean pollution, which is another major factor that contributes in some region to this problem. You know, today we control as humans a lot of the nitrogen cycle, a lot of the phosphorus cycles, and, 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 and other features. All those processes interact and are affecting, for instance, 
coral reefs. But the point that I, I think is a good one, and coral reefs, if, if coral reefs are, are a good example, it shows how much biodiversity and climate are indivisible. You know, mm. uh, the transformation of coral reef has to do with, with climate change, ocean acidification, with pressure over coral reefs, with pollution, and so forth. So it makes all part of the same equation. Yeah, it's a really similar analogy to, you know, how I think people need to also keep in mind how, you know, like climate and social justice are inter, inter, interchangeable, like are interrelatable, yeah. right? Because, you know, the, the most, the, 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 biggest threats and dangers of, you know, our planet continuing to warm and extreme weather and these kind of things is affecting marginalized people the most, the people that have the most to lose. And those are the people that are suffering from social inequality. And, you know, so if you, if you're fighting for social justice, you're fighting for climate justice. If you're fighting for climate justice, you're fighting for social justice, climate refugees, right? Something that we're going to continue to see a bigger, bigger issue. And I think similar analogy to what you're talking about of biodiversity and climate is like if you're fighting for climate, you know, uh, climate, you're fighting for biodiversity. You're fighting bio for biodiversity. You're fighting for climate, and these things are just so interwoven and so interlaced. And social justice is no different. No, and that's a great point because, but actually, in my original formulation, I just took your core reef example, is that those three issues are indivisible: development in in dealing with inequality, climate and biodiversity, broadly speaking. They are closely interconnected, and in part because they're part of the same issue, right? They uh, tell the story of development trajectories and the choices of development that we have been making, particularly after the Second World War. So, you know, we, we have a process after the Second War that, that we call the Great Acceleration, you know, which is the, the, the speed up of a development framework that is based on you know, appropriation and expansion of the appropriation of nature and, and, and you know, without accounting for, of course, the costs of that mm -hmm. development. Environmental justice issues and inequality in burdens, uh, and that's an important thing to, to highlight because it's very visible today, but it has been an issue throughout. You know, if you look 50 years ago, you see that those experiencing the worst conditions, particularly related to pollution at the time, were also a minority community, particularly in the US, for instance. Uh, you know, so it's an, uh, indigenous groups, uh, uh, African-American groups, you know, there's, there's a history and rural populations and indigenous populations, uh, other parts of the world have been suffering the burdens uh, of a development model you know, that is sort of circulating and moving around the planet from region to region, right? And, and basically on a process of value aggregation or appropriation of resource for value aggregation, usually distant from the areas where those resources are generated and then leaving behind the burdens, you know? And of mm -hmm. course the burdens are uh, disproportionately uh, on communities that are more marginalized in society. So I wanna mention that because it's, you know, in the 1970s, this was an issue. And, you know, pollution burdens and other burdens were major issues. Today, all those things have escalated. You know, so uh, it's actually, uh, you know, other kinds of burdens are becoming apparent. You know, climate manifestations, of course, an example where you look at flooding or drought or extreme heat, you know, and, and you see them uh, at least their impact, you know, highly unequal 
yeah. within and between countries. And that's important that, you know, it's not only an issue across countries, it's an issue within countries. You may still be wondering about the link between anthropology and biodiversity. But don't worry, I was as well going into my chat with Eduardo. What does an anthropologist, how does an anthropologist know so much about biodiversity? Like, where is the link between them? Because I think your kind of day job, if I call it that, is a professor of anthropology yep. at the University of Indiana. And, um, and of course, you're involved in so much more than that as well. Help us, uh, you know, kind of understand your background and the link between anthropology and biodiversity, if there, if there is one. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my area of specialty is uh, environmental anthropology. And that's an area, you know, that actually within the tradition of environmental studies, particularly environmental social science studies, anthropology and geography back pioneered this research in, you know, the early 20th century. So I come from that line of trying of understanding and, and bringing an anthropological perspective to understand human environment interaction, right? Uh, once we wrote a paper uh, with a bunch of social scientists, a bunch of colleagues uh, for the Convention on Biological Diversity, that we, we titled the paper, Biodiversity is About People. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was you know, trying to bring those connections to the fore, that, that we're talking about values. We're talking about you know, connections to, to, to different species, the way we see nature. You know, the decisions that we make, what we value about nature. So what an anthropological perspective brings, or at least in my case, the way I approach this is that uh, I want to understand how those different changes uh, interact with people on the ground, how people respond and help to shape the direction of those changes, being, you know, environmental issues that you're facing or social problems that you're facing or decisions about land use, resource management, and so forth. So my research program is based on a, a continuous longitudinal and following over time research uh, in the Amazon. So I've been working, I work in many regions, but I've been working for 30 some years in the Amazon region, particularly in Brazil, trying to understand how things are transforming on the ground from the perspective of the people who are experiencing it but also in my case, I link, and that's my specialty in, in anthropology since um, about 30 years ago when I started this particular approach, I link research, uh, more traditional anthropological research, which is ethnographic based on the ground, very intensive with a regional level research. And so one of my specialties connecting uh, and bringing uh, remote sensing technology and, and geospatial technologies to work together with ethnographic data. We try to get a perspective of what people think and do on the ground and understand how those decisions are manifested in larger landscapes, right? And interact with larger processes like external markets, development programs, climate change, and so forth. So we try to link, you know, levels of analysis, try to link and understand from the perspective of people who are, you know, on the ground, facing, responding, or doing uh, this, the, the actions. Anthropology is a study of human societies, cultures, and their development. Well, given that the climate and biodiversity crises are human-induced in terms of their current extreme levels, well, then who better to understand the human systems that have led us here and the system change that will be needed to correct it than an anthropologist? 
I think on, on the one side, I would say, yes, you're capturing, you know, the importance of understanding what people think, what people do, what are perceptions of people about nature, how they relate to nature, you know, how their values relate to nature and their knowledge and contributions to maintain, sustain, and many times enhance biodiversity. So I have to look at all the sides. But I will add another perspective, another point that is an important contribution of anthropology and the social science more broadly. The behavior that people have today or the way we see you know, people act one way or another relate to biodiversity is also part of a much larger global political economy and, and development system. Right, so which has its own engine and moves on its own terms, you know. So uh, we see the expansion of an economic development process that is, has been moving consistently across the globe, and therefore, you know, it's not only what people want to do on the ground, but many times people are overwhelmed by forces, whether it's a market force for a given commodity that wants to extract, you know some resources, whether are government policies that are implemented on the top down to promote particular goals, like, you know, increase your GDP independent of other issues. Um, and yeah, I mean, larger forces that shape what people think and do on the ground. And those larger forces are related to a development process that has been very consistent over the many, many decades of expanding the, 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 the extraction and production of resources at the detriment of everything else. You know, so in the global assessment, we did a, a systematic analysis of uh, 18 dimensions of what we call nature's contributions to people or ecosystem services, meaning the things that we depend on to have the life that we have. And we organize those in three main groups, you know, the regulating services uh, of that nature provides, the way it cleans the air, cleans the water, produce a productive soil, regulate the climate and so forth, to the more material services that we derive from them, you know, food and wood and minerals and water, to the more cultural services. So we analyze 18 of these categories for the past 50 years to look at the state of the, the planet, the environment of, and what we depend on. Those are categories we all depend on. 14 of these categories are in decline. Hmm. And a good group of them in a steep decline. Uh, and the climate is an example, regulation of the climate or other issues that we see now, you know, the, the, the challenge to revert those change because they require so much coordination. The, uh, the three uh, benefits that we derive from nature that are increasing are the material benefits of energy production, uh, food production, and material production, right? So these are increasing over the past many decades. Everything else is decreasing, you know? And that, as to go back to our previous issue, those things have cascading effects that are unequally distributed. Um, yeah. So it's a development model that, you know, continues to function similarly. Um, you know, trade has expanded 10 times since 1970 uh, and following a process of increasing spatial distance between areas of production and extraction and areas of consumption. 
Eduardo and I switch gears a little bit to talk about another human system, our financial one, our economics, and how the incentives in place have contributed to these crises. I wish we, I don't know if you, if you ever watched the movie Men in Black, where they have the flashy thing that erases your memory, um, but I wish we could just erase the concept of traditional macroeconomics that teach you know, environmental issues as externalities. Right, they're not even factored into models, um, and you know, and also just stop with the kind of the obsession with GDP as the main indicator of if a company's doing well or not, because these are very archaic. I understand how they were developed, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, and why. Right, we didn't know what we know now on 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 the environmental issues and and these and these other stuff. But I wish we could just stop all training of traditional macroeconomics and use something like donut economics and some of these other theories that have been put out there that, hey, say environmental is not an externality, social is not an externality. There's cost that needs to be factored in and how we yeah. make our business decisions. Um, I think we're, we're tiptoeing there, but we're not moving there fast enough at all. Yeah, we at least we're recognizing. You know, yeah, some of us are. <laughs> of this metric. And, and I think you said very right. I mean, we are addicted to GDP. Uh, GDP was developed not to do what we use it for to do it today as a measuring stick of development because it doesn't measure development. It measures a level of productivity, what, what goes through the production machine, right? And some sectors that go through the production machine, a lot of the economic sectors don't even are, are not even counted. It doesn't measure what's left behind and how the benefits of what goes through are distributed, right? So, yeah, I mean, fortunately today, I think there's a, there are many significant efforts, you know, to overcome this GDP sort of a frame of mind, but we're still a long way from that. Yeah. Now, I really like your thing about erasing memories because, uh, and that has very much to do with GDP because it has to do with Kuznets. <laughs> you know, create the GDP and, and create ideas of development trajectories that we are sort of uh, unconsciously, you know, embedded with, you know, for instance. Um, and we see that in expressions of, you know, political choices uh, all the time or, you know, public discussions all the time. For instance, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, countries go through a process of, of income concentration and resource concentration before they go through a process of distribution and better off meant for a larger. So that idea that you have that curve, right, of concentration then to get a better, more distributed and more just development is sort of something that we almost accept as given. And the environmental Kuznets curves, I think, create that same effect, and they still use it today as, as, as a sort of unconscious or conscious mode of thinking about development. You know, I hear that all the time when we, we, we talk about Latin American countries and development policy, for instance, which is that, okay, uh, as countries develop, we're expected to, to create environmental degradation. And pollution is sort of an outcome of the process of development that eventually we will turn that curve and start to take care of our environmental problems once we took care of our economic problems. 
This mindset is sort of set in most people's mind as a natural process, as a naturalized process, you know, and it becomes a self-fulfilling promise because yeah, it implements development to create that, you know, idea of development or of economic growth, accepting the consequence and accepting the injustice because this is the process in which we're going to go through and overcome. Which is, so we have a, a mindset that itself accepts and naturalizes a process of degradation precedes a process of, of betterment, right? And that's yeah. very hard to change because it's so ingrained in the way we think about trajectories of development. If you've not read Kate Raworth's book on donut economics, it's worth a read. We'll link to it in the podcast notes. Essentially, she outlines a new system that factors in true environmental and social costs into our macroeconomics and advocates for a scenario where all humans sort of live in the donut layer of the model. Meaning nobody's in this core center of the donut where you have so much wealth you can't even imagine what to do with it. And also nobody's beyond the donut either where you cannot make a living wage or overcome a serious health issue. This is a really important point I like to raise a lot. Our economic structure is not a binary choice between pure socialism, where everything is heavily controlled and regulated and there's little to no room for socioeconomic movement, or pure capitalism, where we accept unheralded levels of inequality and social environmental exploitation in the name of fostering innovation and living freely. There is plenty of room in between. In fact, we already operate with elements of both. Socialism is not the answer nor is unbridled, unregulated capitalism we've been living under. The spectrum for the human experience doesn't have to be everything from homeless to 200 billion in personal wealth as it is today. It could be having your basic needs met up to hundreds of millions of dollars in wealth with plenty of room for open competition and rewarding innovation in between. But I digress. That's a pod for another time. Another false dichotomy out there is protecting the environment versus economic development, as Eduardo lays out. You touch on another frame of mind that is super consolidated as part of this thing, which is this dichotomy between environment and development. And this dichotomy has been, you know, sort of created and promoted over many decades as, you know, two incompatible things, you know, because of, because but of, they don't have to be. I mean, I think a good example of that not. is, you know, like, um, you know, I I hope we see more advancement in you know, kind of kelp farming and kelp forests, right? Like that is a much more regenerative form of, of, uh, of, you know, sort of crop generation. Kelp is a very healthy, very high protein, but highly regenerative crop that also fosters a lot of biodiversity, kelp forests do. And, you know, it is possible to, you know, kind of harvest kelp forests in a much more regenerative way than it is to harvest corn. Yeah. Right. And no, so but- like, yeah. These things don't have to be separate. They, we've just we made it that way yeah. incorrectly. It's, we have to, it's we have a to very, Sorry, it, it's a very useful false dichotomy, mm-hmm. but one that serves to justify many kinds of you know, policies and, and political positions because you create an opposition to something that, you know, that may be considered priority, let's say employment, you know, versus. So you, you, you create a frame that you then bring other political positions to, you know, to reify it, even though it's a, it's a false dichotomy. 
One of the reasons the climate issue is garnering more support these days is that the effects of it no longer feel so far off or intangible for some of us. They look at the recent wildfires, the Texas freeze, or the historical rainfall and flooding in New York City this year, and can start to wrap their head around the urgency. But we've yet to really reach that point of mass clarity with the biodiversity collapse. So what might that look like, and how do we give this issue a bit of a communications makeover? First, I mean, to, just to, to reinforce, biodiversity, climate, and development are indivisible. So if, mm. if you talk about, you know, mo- a good number of solutions to climate change are biodiversity dependent, right? Absolutely. And maintaining, you know, absorption of carbon and other elements that are key in our, you know, projected pathways are completely biodiversity dependent. And some solutions to climate change, if, uh, you know, that may be just, um, simplistic in the way of dealing with one issue uh, may actually ex- exacerbate biodiversity problems. You know, for example, thinking about biofuels and depending how biofuels can be implemented, you know, may have much worse consequences. Now, um, I mean, I'm very glad that climate is getting as much attention, even though, you know, I think the, the, the biodiversity um, meeting just a few weeks ago, you know, should have received far more attention. But here's the issue. I mean, I think one way that I think about this is to look at the evolution of how do we deal with the sort of collective problem at a global scale, which require incredible amount of coordination in public understanding because of the political, you know, dimensions of that, that we've coming from Montreal, the Montreal Protocol, Right, the, the, I think the first large-scale sort of you know uh, uh, a challenge that we have to deal with the ozone uh, layer. So it started in the 1970s and then to the to the 1980s. Uh, the Montreal Protocol and ozone layer, you know, is one of the things that we can look back and say we live in a better world today than we could be in a situation if we haven't dealt with the ozone layer during the 1980s. So why did that happen? You know, it happened in a way that brought together industry, government, citizens, and and so forth to actually give a step forward in dealing with a major problem, which was the ozone layer. I mean, for one thing is that people were able, uh, among many other things, but people were able to make a more direct connection with one transformation that we're having in the planet, right? That change uh, UV radiation. They have a direct impact on our skin as individuals, right? So, I mean, here you have a problem that is complex in itself because of, of you know, the, the whole industry behind CFCs and the, 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 the gases causing. Uh, the chemicals causing uh, the ozone layer, uh, uh, you know, problem. But you had one issue that people could relate to, could see the connection directly with their health, right? And could be tackled more directly with technology and, and other things. Climate, you know, has been 20, 30 years to get to the level of attention that we have now, in part because the level of complexity of factors and issues and you know values and economies and production systems and the way we live are all intertwined with a problem that is global, right? 
but at the same time is manifested very differently to us, right? The way I experience climate is mediated by, you know, my conditions. And I'm fortunate to have enough conditions to buffer that compared to other people who are experienced directly, right? So I think we're coming to a term now that we are experiencing all these complex changes created with climate change. They are impacting us in many different direct and indirect ways. And we're coming to grasp with the scale of the collective action dilemma that we have. Mm. By diversity, if you think about, you know, from a single issue causing the ozone layer to this complex economy and, you know, biophysics causing climate change, you know, to biodiversity, that even makes it much more complex because it has much more directly to do with our values, our economic choices, our different views of nature. So it's, it's an issue that really challenges us to think in terms of collective action across a large scale where we think very differently, you know, we have very different values and countries have very different political interests and arrangements and so forth. So, so that scale of complexity makes, you know, I think creates the situation that we have today. Oh, now we have, you know, all our, our cards on the climate, but, you know, underlying the climate, you have this cross-cutting issue of nature and biodiversity. Yeah. So how does it impact us? I mean, as you, as you said, um, well, there, there, it depends, I mean, many different ways to think about it. You, you can think about, you know, potential impact of overfishing, right? And overfishing and how it has cascading effects al al along uh, the food chain, you know, and, and, and affect a major source of income and food and a food source for a lot of people. So we have many examples of up and downs in, in, in uh, you know, the pressures that we put on fishing. Um, but that, that's an example. You, you think about, you know, mammals. Uh, today, between us humans and the animals that we raise, we correspond to about or over 98% of the biomass on the planet. So we have squeezed out almost every single large mammal uh, out of their range. And that has other consequences, you know, for food chains in many places. So we're making many ecosystems become much more fragile. Um, to that, to that point real quick, we, we did our first here at Animalia sort of multi-part kind of in-depth series this summer around what we call the American war against wolves. Um, and tried to highlight for people, not only what's happening from a political standpoint on, you know, why wolves continue to be targets from ranchers and, 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 um, you know, the anti-wolf community, primarily on misinformation and, you know, false threats that they, like, they barely kill any cattle, right? And usually it's because non-lethal measures are not put up. Um, but more importantly, that wolves really serve huge cascading effects in ecosystems. And we've seen that in Yellowstone, like they even impact the rivers in Yellowstone, right? Um, and so I think that's like, you know, the, your point of, you know, we're 90, us and the animals we, we raise are what's called livestock is what it is, um, are 97% of the biomass because we've squeezed out all these major mammals. And in this country, in the U.S., wolves are a great example of, of that squeeze for the sake of really agricultural growth. Um, and, you know, the effects of that are, are 
even in what we understand massive. And I still think there's so much we don't understand about nature and how interrelated these things are. Like, I think we're still scratching the surface scientifically. So yeah, it's just one, you know, for our listeners um, that are familiar with that series, because a lot of them are, I just wanted to kind of draw the, tie those two, those two points together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's another example where, you know, biodiversity, climate, and, and development issues are interconnected. Think about the Amazon today, right? Um, and one of the threats that we have in the region today, besides the overall destruction that is, that is taking place, the, you know, incredible pressure in, in, uh, uh, on indigenous groups and, you know, a, a very... Uh, well, a number of developments that are very concerning for the coming 10 years. One of the biggest concern is what we call the saponization of the Amazon, right? So the dryness of the Amazon region as it moves from, you know, a particular kind of water cycle uh, in which the forest plays a major role in the recycling of water and the, all the circulation of water and, you know, plays a major role, not only for the region for sustaining the region as it is, but for South America as a whole. So what's happening in why uh, savanization is a concern now? Because of the interaction of those two processes, you have on the one hand, uh, deforestation and clearing of very large areas of the forest that you know, would provide that water circulation that maintains the level of rainfall and, and humidity distribution in the region and changing in global circulation patterns. So, you know, and of course, increasing temperature, the, the, the dry season in the region now has extended significantly already, particularly for the eastern part of the Amazon. So a combination of human uses that are changing the composition of the forest and those ecosystems and a combination of factors associated with uh, global climate change in, are interacting and transforming the region together, you know, to a different state, uh, potentially, that will be much more drier. And therefore, you're going to have a large-scale replacement of many species groups and, you know, it's cascading effects on water and, and, and so forth. Something Eduardo said really stood out to me. One of the challenges in raising a higher profile for the biodiversity crisis is the incredible complexity of it. The ozone issue flagged in the 80s was very specific and clear, and thus we were able to get collective action around addressing it done pretty effectively. With climate, we've actually accomplished quite a bit in terms of focusing conversations around greenhouse gas levels and impacts on temperature increase. With biodiversity, we're not quite there. It's still very broad and complex, and we've yet to align on a global set of clear targets. The closest we have is maybe our 30 by 30 system protecting 30% of lands and oceans by 2030. But even there, what we mean by protecting is a bit left up to interpretation. So there's work to be done here. Well, first is uh, having an ecosystem perspective to biodiversity, right? Mm -hmm. So when we think about planning, about protection, about, you know, production, you know, we need to think that we need to think about the ecosystem as a whole. Uh, right, the water, the you know, the, the, the different plant and animal species, our own use, and you know, so uh, just that level of of ecosystem planning, ecosystem thinking, cross-sectoral implementation of cross-sectoral policies, you know, that reconcile energy, infrastructure, agriculture, 
uh, fishing and many other use with conservation of the, the key functions and regulations of ecosystems and of course of biodiversity. Uh, we're doing that in many places. So what I think one thing that, that is important to understand is that we have all sorts of tools, both policy tools and technology tools that have been implemented in many places. We have many good examples of ecosystem management and restoration that have been able to deal with biodiversity problems. So implementing what we know, you know, and, and, and to do management, landscape level management and, you know, coastal level management that integrates those things in a way that we sustain what we need, we sustain biodiversity, we sustain the functioning of ecosystem. Now, we have made huge advances since the last 10 years in implementation of protected areas. Okay, so that has been a major step forward in 10 years. We basically reached some of the goals that were set in 2011, you know, for about 17% of the terrestrial surface to be protected. And don't remember about 10% of the orders. And we're almost there. So we made great success. What are some of the issues now? Um, many of these areas that we're protecting are surrounded by pressures. So they're not integrated into the larger management of the larger environment. So you have successful protected areas, very successfully governed indigenous areas that are becoming islands of conservation of biodiversity and cultural diversity. So, you know, it's important that we keep moving forward from protecting species to integrating that protection as part of our larger system of planning and use and, you know, land use and, and so forth. Um, uh, there are many measures that are being implemented there and that have, you know, are gaining success. For instance, different kinds of certifications, right? Certifications, uh, supply chain certifications of different sectors you know, that increase the chance that something is produced and more sustainable. So we've made significant advance and we can further, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of expand certification and implement responsibility across the entire supply chain. I don't think, you know, we can overcome these issues if supply chains don't embed responsibility that are environmental and social throughout. Right, so it's a very difficult uh, process, of course, but I think we're starting to see a movement you know, toward recognizing those externalities of, of market and supply chains and try to, you know, to build more responsible uh, and accountable supply chains. So those are elements that we are also making progress. So we're making progress on you know, cross-sectoral planning and management, and that could be scaled up, you know, uh, a lot more, making progress uh, on protection and integrating protection within and outside protected areas. Um, certification and you know, supply chain management, I think there are steps towards that that uh, are helpful. And one thing that we haven't talked about, and I've been working a lot on it, and during the global assessment, the PBS global assessment, we did you know, the most comprehensive and systematic analysis of the contributions of indigenous people in local communities to nature and to biodiversity. And that's a key piece of this equation, both globally and in most regions of the world. So, you know, one of the things that we show in the global assessment is that uh, 
indigenous people today uh, manage and held in rights, uh, you know, between at least between 25 and 28% of the terrestrial surface, right? So uh, if you include local communities, um, you're talking about almost half of the terrestrial surface, you know, that are managed locally by indigenous populations or by local communities. These are the areas where you find the most conserved ecosystems and biodiversity on the planet. You know, so they're, they're very important as stewards and also maintaining this biodiversity over time. Many of these areas, as I said, are becoming islands surrounded by commodity production, infrastructure development, and so forth and so forth. So uh, they are very important part of the equation, recognizing the rights, you know, and, and the knowledge and the contributions of indigenous people in local communities, something that we can do and that has, you know, it's both on their own rights, that's what we need to do, uh, but also, you know, as they, they play a very important role in the larger equation of biodiversity uh, conservation. Going forward, I would say that, you know, the, the challenge of going forward is really reorienting business as usual development. You know, in, in our analysis of scenarios projecting changes in biodiversity and nature's contributions to 2030 and 2050, you know, most scenarios point very clearly, business as usual, uh, we are not meeting, you know, almost any target for environment and conservation and climate. So we are in a trajectory now that we're not meeting whether climate or uh, biodiversity goals. So it, we really need to think of, you know, not only what we know and what we can do here, but what we can avoid doing. You know, you look at regions like the Amazon, you have hundreds of hydroelectric dams planned, lots of expansion of, of roads and, you know, thousands and thousands of requests of mining operations right now pending. And you look at other regions in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, that's where all those operations continue to expand, um, you know, in larger in this process of, you know, continue to seek uh, cheap nature, cheap labor and weak environmental regulations. So that's what we need to do now is make sure that we change this trajectory that is a red set us for failure for the next 10 years. And I think to that point, this is, the kind of final question um, I'll ask, and it's it's to that point of business as usual. Around World War II is when we really started to kind of bring in, you know, what would you know the modern kind of monoculture agriculture mindset, um, where you know finding highly cost efficient, and again because we don't actually cause environmental damage, so highly cost efficient in traditional terms ways to grow food really cheaply. And that include the advent of fertilizers and pesticides and, um, you know, and, and just, you know, doing mass scale, single, single crops. And it did, it actually did solve the problem that it set out to do, which is make more food available cheaper, right? It, it did do that. I mean, a lot of people were kind of bring lifted out of poverty from that. Um, and, you know, as that circulated around the world and got to China and other parts of the world too, it's now sort of, widespread, right? It's the, the dominant form of how we make grow our food, um, be it be it plants or raising livestock. <clears throat> what, in specific, specifically for that sort of kind of factory farm livestock world and, and kind of mono agriculture world, what 
role, how do we, how can we understand the role that is played in accelerating our biodiversity collapse? And is it in order to, you know, slow down this crisis, is it a prerequisite? Is it a must have that we have to change the way we grow our food um, and, and feed people? Is that, is that a prerequisite? That's a great question. Uh, so first, it is the number one driver of biodiversity loss. It has been and continues to be. And continues to be in part because this mode of agriculture expansion continues to expand in regions like the Amazon, in regions in, in Africa now, in parts of Asia, other parts of Latin America. So that mode of agricultural growth that is you know, centered on productivity of very few crops at very high intensive levels of capital technology, energy, and you know, pesticide and so forth, continue to be very central. So it is the number one driver of loss, continues to be the number one driver of loss. Um, and uh, you know, it's a sector that has impact on many other dimensions that we tend not to account. We talk about water pollution, soil pollution, air pollution, health problems. You know, and it does it does solve that problem, produce more or have higher productivity, right? But it didn't solve the 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 hunger problem. You know, today we made huge improvements in in many this past decade. They were back to, you know, close to seven hundred million people who do not have inadequate food. You know, Brazil is one of the leading agricultural countries and is, you know, all proud for that. Uh, and, you know, it has close to 20 million people that are undernourished. So, you know, it's a system that we need to recognize some advantages and the importance of, of some technologies and how they provided solutions and issues to some problems. But we need to recognize the negative sides of it that continues to happen, you know, in a very business as usual mode. One thing that we don't, actually I'm writing a paper about it right now, that we don't usually talk about the impact of agriculture is on employment. Agriculture and this particular trajectory of agriculture concentrating large scale, few crops, capital intensive and so forth, had huge impact on local production systems. And there are plenty of cases where this mode of agriculture development actually contribute to increase, uh, to increase poverty and hunger rather than the opposite, because they have, you know, it has kind of dismantled very well structured local, local scale diverse production systems. But one of the hugest impact of this agricultural model is the complete transformation of the world demographics and the profile of employment. Uh, this is the sector that has lost most employment compared to any other sector. So just between since 1990, so in 30 years, uh, we have lost 200 million agricultural jobs have been replaced or, you know, or, or terminated. If you, that's each individual job, you know, if you look at the multiplying effects of, of, of these many jobs lost in just 30 years, you know, you're talking about billions of people. So transformation of rural communities, of families, of landscapes, of food production knowledge, but also is the force behind migration for, from rural areas, 
in the increase and accelerated completely precarious growth of urban areas throughout the global south. You know, so I mean, that's I'm mean, trying to kind of not only connect this mode of agriculture production to the complete transformation of our environment, but a transformation, you know, of, of, of the, the global demographics and, and how people live and the consequence of it, we see in the cities, we see, you know, in the informal employment, you see an underemployment, you see, you know, all the, the migration waves, you know, that have been flowing from the global south to the global north. So rethinking agriculture, the, the, the mode of agriculture that we do, you know, changing production system to our sustainable system, uh, verticalizing supply chain so that the value of resources can be captured locally, the value of agriculture work can be valued locally, uh, improving the health of our food systems, you know, bringing food to the city bringing food to peri-urban area, providing new employment opportunities for people producing good food close to consumers, you know, and not the modes that we have come to be, which is, you know, we, we, uh, we uh, uh, import, you know, we, we, we source our food every, every more far away and where we don't see the consequence of those problems. So, yeah, I think this is uh, central to meet the climate goal, the biodiversity goal, and the sustainable development goals. And, and for what it's worth, too, just quick add-on for our listeners to understand, there are other, you talked about the impacts on unemployment and, and you know, not really solving true poverty. There's also impacts on public health. And, uh, and a good example for me, I always, I always draw to is, you know, in the U.S., we, we for decades we've made this food pyramid. You might have seen the U.S. food pyramid. It's taught in every school, and it says you have to have six to ten servings of wheat a day. It's not based on nutrition. Um, it is based on we had a lot of wheat, and we needed people to consume it. And what's happened is most of the wheat we consume is processed and mixed with sugar, and that has caused an epidemic of diabetes, right? And diabetes is probably the biggest cost center of Medicare. Yeah. And you think of like all that money we're spending on treating diabetes um, and some diabetes type one, you know, are, are genetic, but a lot of diabetes are just from unhealthy eating for a long period of time. We spent so much money on treating that and all that money could be going towards, you know, you know, lifting up uh, marginalized communities, public education, free healthcare, broader, broadly. Right. But instead we spend it on treating diabetes and we have to spend so much on treating diabetes because we instructed people to eat, in a way that supported the large scale single crop system. Yep. Um, that's not actually has nothing to do with your health. Nobody should be eating 10 servings of wheat a day. Like, that's not, yeah. you know, the, the vegetable and food group is tiny. And it's like, you, you eat a lot of wheat and you drink a lot of milk and you eat a lot of meat. And then, yeah, if you, if you can sprinkle a vegetable in there, go ahead. Yeah. And it's just like, this it, it makes no sense. Yeah, that's an analogy that I like that you made that is, um, you know, the, we had a lot of wheat or we have something else, you know, that we need to find. It's the same process with the, you know, the, 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 the chemical and the technology turn in agriculture. We were left after the war with stockpiles. Stockpiles, <laughs> so much of Stockpiles of chemicals, you know, that found use in, in fertilizers and pesticides and machinery. That, so, you know, you see that both here, you see in Europe, 
you know, that, that transition in agriculture that is very closely connected with, you know, the, 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 the remnants of this is stockpiles of stuff that, that we produced during the war. Uh, yeah. was, you know, same with the food issues. So yeah, uh, with, with the, the crops. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a sector that I don't think we can, it's a very difficult sector because it's, you know, emblematic and symbolic for many people when you talk about food, when you talk about agriculture, um, uh, but it's perhaps one of the most central sectors to, you know, to do and to have kind of cross-cut impact on, on climate, on biodiversity and development. And I mean, that's one thing we can do, where not easy thing to do, but is reorienting subsidies, particularly the so-called harmful subsidies, which support agriculture, energy, oil, fisheries by the trillions. And you know, each sector by hundreds of millions are supported and the kinds of problems that we're talking about are supported by subsidies. You know, and, and that's an area where reorienting subsidies, you know, to as incentives for transitions in those systems to more sustainable systems and systems that employ more as well, you know, would go a long way to have that impact. And that is in the hands of policymakers, you know, and really shifting the idea of how a subsidy can serve as an incentive, you know, for a better transition, you know, than for continuing this kinds of business as usual issue yeah. that we see in all the sectors. And, uh, and, and, and the agriculture, you know, is a great sort of uh, kind of demonstration of how, you know, climate and biodiversity are so interlinked. Um, and so it's a great, yeah, it's a great, it's a great focus point. Well, Eduardo, I, I really appreciate the time and uh, from you and, and this conversation has been insightful and I know our listeners will learn a lot from it as well. And uh, kudos to you on the work you do and what you've dedicated your life to. Um, yeah, it's uh, we're all we're all beneficial from it. We're all we're all yeah we all benefit from it. Thank you so much. Well, congratulations to you uh, to the to the podcast and to the success of the podcast. I really appreciate the invitation to share, you know, the thoughts with you. I want to end with one note, uh, yeah. which I didn't talk much today, which is the hope that we find everywhere. Mm. <laughs> You know, my, my current uh, uh, project, which I collaborate with a number of people, is called Agents. Um, it's in the Amazon about agents of change, agents of transformation. And we look at place-based initiatives that are dealing with these problems, that individuals, small communities, groups, social movements are dealing with these problems on the ground. And what we find is that while we're invisible in general, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of initiatives of people making a difference, trying to find better conditions for their lives, their environment, their landscape, but also having a much broader impact. And I think that's what we cannot lose sight of, particularly as we, you know, we're, I don't know, expecting COP26 to, we don't know what, you know, what kind of agreement will come from there, many other problems that we're facing, but we cannot lose sight that People are acting or making a difference or improving things, you know, and eventually I think we can, you know, turn this, uh, you know, the, the current situation to a much better trajectory going forward. So not, let's not lose hope and let's value everyone, every single individual, every single organization for, at all levels 
who are addressing those issues and you know, leading initiatives that are making a difference. The last point is something I want all of us to walk away with. The two ends of the spectrum of an action are hopelessness and complacency. If we are too complacent, we will not act enough. However, if we're too hopeless and negative, we will also not act to the best of our abilities. We need to stay somewhere in between hopelessness and complacency in order to solve our biggest challenges. Big thanks to Eduardo for joining us today, and big thanks to all of you for your support for us here at Animalia. And thank you, as always, for standing up for this big, beautiful planet and all the incredible life on it. Until next time.